At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our series, Divided, Seeking Unity in a Fractured World, we're coming face-to-face with the division that seems to define the culture of our nation, our communities, and even our churches. Join us as we turn to 1 Corinthians to discover the unifying power of a people who follow Christ. Well, friends, it is so good to be back with you after uh, a small trip uh, that we took to uh, South Africa. I'll update you on that in just a few minutes. But it is so awesome to see how the gospel is uh, moving locally and abroad. Uh, I love hearing Pastor EJ just update you on what's happening with our kids and our students. How many thank God for what's happening in the next generation? So we have flip camp, hundreds came. As a matter of fact, across all our campuses, about 1,200 came that week of kids who heard the gospel, gave their lives to Jesus. And then you just heard hundreds of uh, kids gathered together for our Hope Week and 26 baptized, 19 from this campus. And then you add on to that, at the end of this week, we got our flip camp, which is an overnight Uh, I'm sorry, our Camp Woodside, which is an overnighter for our upper elementary kids. So I'm grateful for a church that invests in the next generation. But I'm also grateful for what's happening around the world as well. I had our team just type up for me uh, where we have served globally so far this year. Uh, We've been to Rome, to Guatemala, to Uganda, Costa Rica. Obviously, a team just came back from South Africa, South Dakota as well. And in between all of those, we've been able to do two special needs camps for special needs uh, families. How many can say to God be the glory for that, that uh, we've been able to, uh, to serve nearly 600 of our church family members. And in many ways, we see ourselves as Barnabas. And what I mean by that is that we get the privilege to come alongside Pauls who are serving in their uh, uh, place in God's vineyard, and we get a chance to encourage them and partner with them and support the work of the Lord happening in places all over the world. So what we have still coming up, we got Ecuador coming up in September. We got Liberia coming up as well. My prayer for you is that you would do one of two things. Either that you would uh, pray, God, where would you have me to go? Because for some of you, God is saying it's time. Or that you would pray, Lord, uh, how, can you, how can I support that through prayer, through my giving and generosity so that the world might have a witness of your goodness and your grace? Occasionally, we have missionaries uh, that we have sent out from Woodside come and uh, in town, and I always love for you to be able to hear from them, such is the case this morning. I want to invite up Daniel Park to come and join me, uh, DP. As many of you know, him uh, was groomed in this uh, church and uh, discipled here and sent out from here. He's serving in South Asia now. Uh, We thank God for you, brother. Thank God for your investment to the lives of our uh, students before you left out and now what God has you doing. I want to DP to just take a couple minutes to give us an update just on how God is at work and how we can be praying for you. Sure. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Let me just share two stories with you that kind of encapsulate the state of our ministry and the spiritual climate of the country that I serve in. I was having a conversation uh, with a young man who considers himself a devout Hindu. And we were having a spiritual conversation. and, um, And I asked him this question. I said, buddy, do you believe that the events of the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of their sacred scriptures, do you believe these events are historical or mythical? And his response was fascinating to me. His response was, it doesn't matter. 
it is whatever you want it to be. Uh, that conversation right there encapsulates the mind of a Hindu too well, where they believe whatever you believe to be true is true. Um, but in relation to that, I was having a conversation with another, another friend, and, um, and he had been around our ministry for a long time. We had been ministering to him. He grew up in a Hindu family. And, uh, and I asked him, um, hey, who do, you think, who do you think Jesus is? And he said this. He said, well, I believe Jesus is God. And then I asked him a follow-up question. I said, well, do you believe Jesus is only God? He said, no. So I said, oh, so you believe Krishna and Brahma are also gods? He said, yes. So that led me to have a lengthier conversation with him. And I was able to show him passage of scripture um, that directly contradict what he's saying. He cannot believe Jesus is God and also believe Krishna is also God. Because Jesus says, clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus makes claims such as, I am who I am. So Jesus is clearly saying he is God and he's the only God. And so through scripture, uh, we would meet and we would talk and we would talk and talk and talk. And I was able to show him through scripture how uh, the claim that Jesus can be God and there can be other gods that just couldn't, couldn't be true. And over a period of time, um, we uh, were having a conversation uh, in my house and, uh, and I asked him the question again. I said, do you believe Jesus is God? He said, yes. And I said, do you believe Jesus is only God? He said, yes, I do. Amen. And I would like to, I would like to demonstrate that through baptism. So that's the, that, that, the, the darkness of Hinduism is uh, all too prevalent. And so you could be pleased praying for us that the Lord would open the eyes of um, the, uh, the eyes of the friends that we're serving with and, and they're soften their hearts to the truth of the gospel. Amen. Can you guys join me in praying for Daniel? Stretch forth your hands just as a sign of unity. Father, you don't call us all to uh, easier, comfortable places, Lord. Uh, you call us to hard places at times, uh, Lord, so that we might be able to prove again and again that the entrance of your word brings light and life. And thank you that light does push back to darkness. Lord, I pray for Daniel that his heart will be encouraged. I pray that the light of the gospel will shine bright in the places that uh, you've called my brother to minister. And I pray that there will be uh, more fruit. Wherever the gospel is, it bears fruit. So may there be more fruit, may more men and women come to see that you are God alone and that besides you, there is no other. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate you. Let's continue to pray uh, for our brother. So I want you to see a photo real quickly. South Africa was amazing. I uh, got a chance to go there. It was six dads and eight daughters. You can check out uh, this photo there. You see me there. My daughter Zoe uh, was there. Over to the left, you see Ross Shainer, his awesome daughter, Ava. You see our team leader, Adam Simon. He brought two girls, two incredible girls, Brooklyn and Chloe. And then over there, you see Pastor Steve Zarelli, his daughter, Leah. Uh, Jeff Keith, who's our campus pastor for Warren, brought two of his daughters. He has like 28 kids. No, I'm just joking. Four. Uh, Ray, Rayleigh and Karis. And then one of our deacons there, you see at the end, Ryan Krogi. He brought his amazing daughter, Leah, as well. These girls did an amazing job representing Jesus to hundreds of kids in a village named Mavusa there. And part of what they did, in addition to sharing their testimony, is we sponsored 
sponsored uniforms and uh, for this girl soccer team that just got launched. And they uh, have been playing on a dirt field without uniforms. And uh, when we gave them those uniforms, you should see their faces. Uh, Kathy Hernandez, who was like the team mom, she helped to mobilize this great outreach and uh, gave these girls such a sense of worth and identity to let them know that God sees them. And how many thank God that that's the gospel, that God sees us, amen? When you travel like this, though, part of what happens is when you come back home, you are reminded of the stark differences between where you were and where you are now. So some of that is seen economically, to go from weeks of sleeping in huts and outdoor plumbing to come home. How many praise God for indoor plumbing? How many thank God for indoor plumbing? I just want a big amen for that. Uh, but uh, you come home and you just realize there's not only material economic differences, but cultural differences as well. And one of the areas that the West is kind of um, uh, uh, leading the world in the negative sense is as it pertains to our divisions. There's far more of a sense of a community in many of these places around the world than what we see here. Uh, it's a product of the hyper-individualism of our culture combined with uh, social media and so many other negative forces that produce these types of divisions. And you have heard it said, and I think it could be proven, that we are living in the most divided time in our history. Now, that may feel like just sentiment, right? Just anecdotal sentiment. But I wanted to do uh, research on this because I'm a data-driven guy. And I ran across this Vanderbilt Unity Index, VUI. And what the VUI has been doing since 1981 across several categories is measuring unity or the lack thereof in the U.S. And since 1981, what they would report is that they have seen a precipitous decline in the state of unity in our nation in particular. And while it may not be at the lowest point, there's been a few points like after war and, and uh, other, other times where it's been a little bit lower, it is towards the lower end of the index. So it it is true that we're living in one of uh, the least unified, one of the most divided times in our history. But you know, one of the things that I love about the gospel is that the gospel is always the answer to what ails humanity. I don't care what's going on in your family or what's going on in our culture or in the world. The good news that Christ has come to bring salvation, to bring mercy, to reconcile us to God and through that reconcile us to one another is the answer. How many believe that? That that is the answer to what ails our culture. Now, it's one thing for us to lament the disunity in our country. It's another thing for that to happen in the church. When disunity happens in the church, it's an affront to the name of Christ. Because Christ has called us to be one in him. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be exploring how the Apostle Paul in particular addresses disunity in the church. Now, two motivations for this. It's not lost on me, shouldn't be lost on you, that we're in an election year. And election years don't typically tend to produce kumbaya moments. Amen? They tend to spur on further disunity. And I don't want that to happen within the church. I don't want that to happen because how can we tell the world that the gospel is powerful enough to reconcile you to God if it's not powerful enough to reconcile us to one another? 
A divided church will never be able to reconcile a divided culture. But the second reason why we want to explore what Paul has to say about unity in Christ, the power of the gospel to unify us, is because one of the secrets about the spread of the gospel is that the, the gospel spreads at the speed of our unity. But the more united we are, the greater the credibility and the faster the spread of the gospel. Conversely, it's true, the more disunited we are, the more we hinder the spread of the gospel. With that preface, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians at Corinth who are surprisingly, though distant from us in uh, geography or in years, surprisingly much like us. Today we're going to talk about coming together. As a matter of fact, that's the title of the message, Come Together. Pastor EJ mentioned to the kids, if you fill in the notes, you'll get a water bottle. I like to say it this way. You fill in those notes, ask your parents or grandparents for whatever you want, and they'll get it for you. Whatever you want, just ask it, and they'll, they'll pay for it. Um, with that being said, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Paul, the apostle, is, is, is writing this. A little bit about Corinth, just a little bit of a background here. Corinth is, uh, is an ancient city. It's in Greece. It's a very prosperous city. It's a port city, meaning that during that time there weren't planes, but goods and products were brought in by merchants, by boats. And when you're a port city near the water, that meant that you were a recipient and benefactor of that. So many merchants would come in and, and do trade. And, but not only that, it's a peninsula connecting city. So so uh, Corinth connected Greece to the northern peninsula of Rome. So that meant there was a lot of diversity that happened there. A lot of people from different parts of the world coming together, different economic stratas as well. So what typically happens when diversity is present? Division. Typically when you get people from different cultures, backgrounds, languages, economic stratuses, you end up getting division. And the Bible understands this. And this is what has always been po powerful about the gospel. What is powerful about the gospel is that it has the power to bring together people who otherwise would be divided because of cultural barriers. Think about how powerful it must have been in the early church for Jews and Gentiles to sit down at the same table to eat together. Think about how powerful it must have been during the early church days for bond and free to sit down and eat together. Or think about how powerful it was to be in a worship service and men and women are not at war with one another, misogynism versus feminism. It was unity in Christ for the betterment of the gospel and for the strength of the family. Those are powerful things that only happen when the gospel is at work in our hearts together. And so when we don't have that, what we're doing again is undermining the, uh, the, the credibility of the gospel. As a matter of fact, it was Jesus who said, they're going to know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And that is most clearly seen when you were loving one another, not based off of things that we have in common, but in spite of our differences. It's estimated by historians that about 30% of the, of the city of Corinth were slaves, so in the backdrop of all of this prosperity, there was, there was poverty. 
And so Paul, who was a missionary, by the way, he took three missionary journeys where he went to different cities. The first missionary journey, he went to plant churches, start churches. Second missionary journey, he did the same. Third missionary journey, he went back to the churches he started so that he can strengthen them and make sure that they had established elders and leaders so that they can grow and flourish. It's on that second missionary journey that he starts a church called Corinth. He spends about 18 months there preaching the gospel. Two of the synagogue leaders, the Jewish community leaders, come to faith in Christ. Crispus, who we'll read about later on in chapter 1, and Sosthenes, who we're going to be introduced to today. They come to faith in Jesus. This small church gets born, and it is, it is growing, but then trouble breaks out. That's what happens in any church. Satan tries to attack us at the place of our unity. Now, if I were to ask you, which letter... Is this from Paul to the Corinthians, and you were a careful reader, you would say, this is which letter? First letter. I'm glad you answered that. I'm, that wasn't like a gotcha question. It's just, it's right there. Um, the rest of this is going to be pretty tough. But, um, but the reality is, even though we historically call this First Corinthians, it's actually Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. How do we know that? Well, turn with me real quickly to chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9, Paul indicates that there was a previous letter that he had written. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul now is alluding to the fact that he had already written them a previous letter in which he addressed the issues of sexual immorality, probably because it was an issue within the church. Just because we have a group of Christians together doesn't mean we're, we're the assembly of the perfect. If we're not careful, the issues of the world will become the issues of the church. The issues of the culture will become the issues of the church, but yet we're called to be different. Paul says we're called to be different in our sexuality. And he wasn't telling them to disassociate with those who are sexually immoral that weren't Christians. He says, if I was telling you that, you wouldn't even be able to interact with anybody. But I'm telling you to do, don't associate with those who are sexually immoral but call themselves believers because that's an offense to the uh, testimony of Christ. Now, I'm not preaching on sexual immorality, though a lot could be said about that. I'm just simply trying to evidence the fact that Paul had written them a letter previously. Now, if you go to chapter 7, verse number 1, chapter 7, verse number 1, what you see is that apparently before he wrote this letter, they had written back. After his first letter, how do we know? He says this, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So clearly they had written him back, letting him know about some of the things that were going on there. So Paul understood there's a lot of dysfunctions here. They're abusing the spiritual gifts, using their gifts and abilities for prideful purposes instead of the edification of the body. They have marital discord. They don't know how to operate as husbands and wives in a healthy way that reflects Christ's relationship with the church. And they're disunified. And so Paul writes this letter as a corrective to address all of those issues. And he starts with the unity issue. Because if we don't have unity in Christ, if we don't understand the basis of that, we're not going to understand anything else that Paul is going to say to us. So here's the big question that we're asking. What does it mean to be called together in Christ? 
And the big idea of today's message is this, and kids, you can write this in, is that we are called together in Christ. That when you come to faith in Jesus, you get a Savior, but not just a Savior, but you inherit a spiritual family as well. The church is a spiritual family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we must see each other that way. God has called us together as a family. Amen? And so, what does it mean to be called together in Christ? I'm glad you asked. Three things it means. And he starts by first telling us that we are called to holiness. Look at what Paul says in verses 1 and 2. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Verse number 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, underline that word, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul is starting out with identity. He always is focusing us back on what is your identity. And he uses two words that have the same root in, in the Greek. This, this word sanctified or saints meaning holy. That you and I are called to be holy. That you and I are called saints by God. Now how many when you look in the mirror in the morning say there goes a saint? Most of us don't look at us ourselves that way, do we? No, we don't. And if you come from a Catholic background, what you were, were taught is that saints are this small, rare group of very special people that did something so incredible that it got the attention of the church and somehow Rome became familiar with them and the Pope and others uh, gave them this special designation as a saint. And that's reserved for this rare group of Mother Teresa types. Well, the reality is, is that that's foreign to the Bible. The way the Bible describes what a saint is, is a person who has put their faith and trust in Jesus. Now, for a moment, I want to just normalize that word because we need to normalize what it means to be a saint. That if you have put your faith in, in Jesus as your Savior, how many have done that? Put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior. You are a saint. Say it with me. I am a saint. Doesn't mean you're perfect by any means. But what that word sanctified means literally is to cut or to set apart. To, to cut, like almost like a butcher word, to cut a piece of meat off from the rest of the meat because you have a special purpose for it. And so God, when we put our faith and trust in him, he cuts us and separates us from something to someone. We are separated from the rest of the world to God for a special purpose. What is that special purpose? To know him and to make him known. That's your purpose in life. Now, how you express and live out that purpose is going to be uh, various. We're going to do it in various ways through the use of our time, our talent, and our treasure. But at the base of what all of our callings are is to know him and make him known. That through Christ, we can know God and we can invite others to know God that's a special purpose, friends. That's the highest purpose of the human life. The highest purpose of the human life is not pleasure or money or entertainment. The highest purpose of the human life is to know God and to make him known. 
And that's also, friends, where joy is found. How do we know that? Well, if you read uh, 1 John, the first few verses, the apostle says, I want our joy to be complete. He's speaking on behalf of the other apostles, and he goes on to explain how their joy is complete. He says, it happens when you enter into our fellowship. And our fellowship, he goes on to say, is with the Father through the Son. When people enter into fellowship together in Christ, knowing him and making him known, there is joy, friends. That's why we need the church. We shouldn't just uh, see the church as extra uh, luxury in our lives. We should see that when we come together in this place as the people of God and the house of God to worship the name of our great God, that when we do that, it is increasing our joy. And if the world needs anything, it needs joy. But we are not just saints individually, we are saints collectively. Together, we have been set apart for this special purpose. So when we come together on the Lord's Day, like a day like today, to worship God, we are bearing witness to the rest of our community that God is real, that he is Lord, and that he is coming back again. That's what happens when you come together in moments like this. We are bearing witness to everybody who rides down Rochester Road, sees all these cars. What are they doing in there? They're coming together to worship God and to declare one more week that he is Lord. How many can declare that with me? That Jesus is Lord. Amen? Somebody say, I'm special. Now, I know that's hard to say. Say it again. I'm special. And that could mean you're a little bit quirky, too, but I... I what I mean by it is you've been set aside for a special purpose. Now, let me give you an example of this. When I got married, and some of you are old enough to remember this, when I got married, our parents, mainly my mother-in-law, got us a special set of dishes, we call them china, special set of dishes that for, were for special occasions. How many got that when you got married? A special set of dishes. If you're younger and you got married, you probably don't have that. But when, you, when you're my age or older, you got these special dishes. And, and those dishes weren't for sloppy Joe night. Right? You don't sit these dishes out for sloppy Joe Wednesday. And they're definitely not for Taco Tuesday, right? What are those dishes for? Special occasions. You pull out that good silverware, you pull out those good plates for a really special occasion. By the way, that has its root in the Old Testament where there were special utensils for worship. We've carried that over into our culture as well, that there's something special. We shouldn't treat every day as the same. There's special use. These dishes are for special use. And to this day, you walk into my, my kitchen, my wife's kitchen, and there's a cabinet with all of our special dishes there. And they're, they're there for a special purpose where we are God's special instruments set aside for a special purpose to go into the world to declare a special message and that message is Jesus is Lord. You are holy. We are called to be holy. Now this is, let me say why this is important. It is not until we get a glimpse of his holiness that we understand why our unity is required. As a matter of fact, our holiness doesn't derive from us. Our holiness derives from him. He is holy. 
He's not just holy, but as we read a few weeks ago in Isaiah 6, as the angels fly around the throne room of God, they declare he is holy, holy, holy. He is in a class all by himself. He is special. He is set apart. There is no other God like our God. He is worthy of all of our praise. He is high and lifted up. How many believe that? That our God is worthy of all the praise, all the glory, all the honor, that he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the maker of heaven and earth. All power and dominion belong to him. He is holy. And because of that, and because he is our father, we take joy in doing his commands. And so when he commands us to be one, it is incumbent upon us that we would do that. You know, I, I try to have a pretty laid back temperament. I can get excited from time to time. But if you really want to see my emotions aroused, especially at home, it happens when my kids are not unified. As a matter of fact, a few days ago, I got two boys who are super competitive and at times they, they take it up to a notch or a level that shouldn't be. And so a couple of days ago, they're going at one another and uh, kind of went a little bit too far. And so we had uh, a father and son's Bible study. Pulled them into our son room and for an hour, we studied two verses of scripture. They loved it. Two verses of scripture on what it means to love one another and to use your words, not to tear down one another. And I told them that you're going to go out into the world as you grow up and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to tear you down and you're going to face a whole lot of challenges. But you need to know that there's family back home that supports you and loves you no matter what. And in the middle of that lecture, I said, oh, no, I've become my parents because I could hear my mom saying the same thing to me. But this is how our father's heart is. He wants us to be family. Because he is holy, we're set apart for a special purpose. But he goes on to say, and maybe you caught it in verse number two, we're also called to unity. Look at what it says in verse number two, to the church. Now I want to stop there for just a moment. Oftentimes when we read the scripture, we make the mistake of inserting I where we should see we. This letter is not written to an individual. This letter is written to the church as a community. He doesn't say to Sally or to Mary Sue or to Steve or to John. He doesn't uh, call some individual. He says to the church. So when, he, when they read this, when we read this, we should see this as a part of being connected to one another. That we, when we come to faith in Christ, get a savior, but not just a savior, but we get a family, a spiritual family. We're a part of the church. That rubs against the hyper-individualism of our culture. And let me just say as an aside, you and I don't get to pick who gets to be a part of the church. How many are grateful for that? You should be. Because if we got a chance to vote on you, you might not have made it in. And if you get a chance to vote on me, maybe I don't make it in. But how many thank God that it wasn't a democratic process? How many thank God that the spiritual family is chosen by God and God alone? So that means that you and I can get in by faith in Christ in spite of our background, in spite of how people feel about us. God didn't take an opinion poll in, uh, of you about how you felt about me before he saved me. He simply invites me to put my faith in him, and he does that for you as well. But when we become 
believers, we get a family. And he wants us to see ourselves that way, that we are a part of a family of faith, a covenant community, and it's called the church. To the church of God that is in Corinth. So he's writing to the believers in a particular city. This is as if he was writing to those of us who are in Southeast Michigan. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those. Now look at this. Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now Paul is saying something deep. He is saying, not only do I want you to see yourselves as one in Christ in Corinth, and everybody who's a part of your local assembly singing and worshiping God, regardless of if they're prosperous or slave, Jew or Greek, male or female, not only do I want you to see them as family, but wherever you go all over the world, if you bump into somebody who says, Jesus is Lord, I want you to treat them as your brother or sister. As a matter of fact, you're obligated to do that. You know, recently... We got on a plane from here in Michigan, flew to Atlanta, then 16 hours to South Africa. We got off a plane and met a group of people that most of us had never met before, but because they love Jesus and call him Lord, and we love Jesus and call him Lord, they treated us as family. We treated them as family as well. And that's what God wants to happen. Maybe the best illustration I can give you of this is that if you've known me for any length of time, you know my love and affection for my alma mater. Now, I don't want to offend you. I just want to use this as an example. So what happens, and this happens to us on every vacation, no matter where we've been, globally, domestically, if I'm wearing something that has our school logo on it, or I'm wearing something that has um, something about my school on it, and I'm walking through a crowd, somebody yells out, go green. You know the response. You're obligated. Go green, go, go white. You got to do it. Now, you may not know them. They may be weird. <laughs> but you're part of the same Spartan family. That's the way you feel about it. There's been times, I remember walking through an airport and a group of guys having an intense conversation. They see me, I see them. They say, go green, I say, go white. We talk for a few minutes. Then my wife asked me, do you know those guys? I said, absolutely not. <laughs> but I love them. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Maybe it's go green, go white. Maybe it's go blue and maize. Whatever the case may be, our relationship to Jesus and because of that to one another should surpass that. That our unity in Christ is greater than our alma mater, greater than our geography, greater than our skin color, greater than our generational differences, greater than our gender differences, greater than any social barrier. How many know that the fact that you and I are in Christ is the greatest unifying factor in all of the world? And wherever I go, if you love Jesus like I love Jesus, we are family. All right, final point. Verse number three. We are also called to be gracious peacemakers. It says this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Paul uh, gave a standard 
salutation. This was his standard salutation. It was always grace and peace. That grace and peace does two things. It unites Jew and Gentile, which was the tension of his day ethnic, ethnically. For the, for the Gentile, for the Greek in particular, their standard greeting was charis or grace, brother. For the Jew, the standard greeting was shalom or peace, brother. Paul, in one salutation, grace and peace unites Greek and Jew. It's a beautiful thing. But he always does it in that order. He never says peace and grace because that's the way peace works. Peace never precedes grace. Grace always precedes peace. It is the undeserved act of God in offering our Savior Christ on the cross for our sins when we receive it that we, re we receive peace with God. We experience peace with God, peace within ourselves, and peace with others. That peace, the peace that you are searching for, the peace that you're longing for in your heart, in your mind, in your relationships, that peace comes only after we have received grace. One New Testament scholar, Gordon Fee, says this about this verse. He says, in a sense, this verse sums up the whole of Paul's theological outlook. The sum total of God's activity towards uh, humans is found in the word grace. God has given himself to us mercifully and bountifully in Christ. Nothing is deserved. Nothing can be achieved. And the sum total of those benefits as they are experienced uh, by the recipients of that grace is summed up in the word peace, meaning well-being, wholeness, or welfare. We receive peace from God and it is effective when we receive the grace that is offered through God our Father and was made effective in human history through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want peace today, accept his grace. Because apart from a gracious Savior, none of us can know the peace that we need. I pray that today we will embark on a journey over the next several weeks that will help us to push back on the forces of culture that will cause us to be disunified over secondary things. But I pray not only that we would experience unity in our church, but that you would experience unity in your homes, in your families, and in your heart with God. Let's stand together. I want to pray and dismiss us today. But as I pray, if you have not yet received the grace of God is offered by Jesus Christ on the cross for your salvation, I pray that today you would do it. But you wouldn't wait another minute. Nothing else has to be analyzed. Nothing else has to be uh, measured or considered. It's a gift he's making available to you. All you have to do is receive it. And as you receive it, you'll grow in it. You don't have to have everything figured out. But know this, God loves you so much that he gave his only son so that you and I, through faith in him, might know the forgiveness of our sins, salvation from the wrath that is to come. God wants you to know peace. And if today you want to give your heart to Jesus, after I'm done praying, come running to the front or stop at our Connect desk in the lobby. Or if you're watching online, just type the word Connect so that we can wrap our arms around you and walk with you as you take your next steps in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that we've experienced today. The worship, the word, mostly 
Thank you for the fellowship we have in you. Lord, I pray that those who feel distant and far off will be brought near. We're so undeserving of your mercy, but you're so gracious and generous in giving it. May it be multiplied to us and through us till all have heard, until Christ returns. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.